You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Byron Williams, and we're back with The Small Print. Today, my guest is Adrian Seville. And as usual, I'd like you to please introduce yourself the way you wish to be introduced. <laughs> um, I'm Adrian Seville. I'm uh, an investment specialist at Chenera Capital, and I'm professor in economics, finance, and strategy at the Gordon Institute of Business Science. So very, very well qualified to have the conversation we're going to have today, which is really around what we need to do to get Africa's economy and South Africa's economy in particular back on track, because I think it's hugely undeniable that things are far from perfect at the moment. And quite a lot of those problems can at least be improved, if not cured, by a little bit of smarter policy choice. So to start off with, I know that you have put out into the public domain and have spoken about in various different places about your sort of six pack for economic growth. So should we start there and maybe you can just fill our listeners in as to what your six pack when it comes to policy and getting things right could be to try and start tilting the ship in a slightly better direction. I think that's a lovely place to start. Um, uh, over the past 10 years or so, I've been involved in a piece of work that studies the, 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 the performance of 160 countries over 60 years. And uh, we, we, with, with access to a very, very rich set of data for these 160 countries, uh, and we're talking about you know, more than a thousand different line items of data, and it's everything from the size of government, the number of doctors per person, life expectancy, um, uh, number of um, uh, kilometers of paved road um, uh, in the country, etc. Um, we essentially asked uh, a machine uh, to look at this big data and tell it, uh, tell us what it finds in terms of the DNA markers of countries that transition and transform and then sustain uh, themselves on a path to what you know, economic textbooks would call inclusive growth. And with the benefit of hindsight, we would then teach these in classrooms and talk about economic miracles. And the, I think the, you know, the drum roll or the real elegance of this research is it says, in fact, these aren't miraculous, it's, 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 it's common sense and almost self-evident that there are these six common factors or six common ingredients, what you would call the DNA markers, in the same way that we might go and look for, you know, what are the attributes or behaviors of top athletes or top um, CEOs? The same uh, holds for top countries. And these six ingredients include uh, elevated savings and investment rates, uh, a d demographic structure that you actually want people coming into your workforce rather than going into retirement. So you want babies to be born. Uh, of course, those babies need access to education and healthcare, and those are the third and fourth ingredients. Interestingly, in a pandemic or post-pandemic world, I'm not quite sure where we are, Bronwyn, uh, on that timeline, but um, uh, for much of the 12 years that we've been presenting this work, healthcare hasn't been a talking point, yet it's always been there, and in fact, it carries a higher explanatory weight than education. Um, so healthcare is very much uh, a critical component. It's always been there and it will stay there. And then um, uh, the other two ingredients are policies and institutions. 
And interestingly, policies and institutions, uh, it's policy stability and institutional capability and to underline the word stability, policy stability rather than good or bad policy. And then the final ingredient is, uh, is economic connectedness and openness. So those are the six things. Um, and if you can get uh, a fair doses of those six ingredients in place, it's not a guarantee that you will become uh, an, an ultimate miracle or a business school case study or an inclusive and thriving market, but you've got the ingredients necessary to bake this fantastic social and economic cake. That's a, that's a great opening over there. So perhaps my first question there would be, how important is it that a country focuses on all six of the pillars? If someone is very good at, say, education or fantastic at having a free and open market situation, are they going to be able to reap some of those economic rewards? Or is this really a case of the whole is greater than the sum of the parts? So you've got to know this is an economics answer, and I'll give you <laughs> lots of howevers and ifs and buts. The, <laughs> so the first, there, there's a couple of things. Maybe I could even put you know a, a comment before uh, answering that directly. You know, do you have all six? Is what we established is that the six factors carry different weights, and that there is a sequencing. That there are particular download orders, um, and okay. So let me stay just with the weights first. Of the six ingredients, savings and investment, and economic openness carry by far uh, the biggest third factor. If you're gonna get two things right, get those right. Get an elevated savings and investment rate. And just to be clear, investment is not capital market investment, it's gross domestic fixed investment. It's building highways, harbors, fiber optic cable. And then openness is in and of itself uh, isn't enough. It needs to be functional openness, what we would call a win-win outcome in the language of economics. That, uh, slavery, you know, is, is a human atrocity and social tragedy, and that was economic openness, with one country or one community extracting uh, from another. That would be characterized in economic terminology as openness, with horrific outcomes. So it's not openness in and of itself is, is good. It's it's functional openness where both parties are better off through through the relationship. Those are the two that you really want. And you can then get some forgiveness on the other factors. But there is no country that has become prosperous with low savings rates. And there is no country that has become prosperous by building walls, note to the former president of the United States. Um, so those are, those are two that you have to have. However, you know, there are countries that have become prosperous while losing demographic structure. China is a great case in point that China actually has a shrinking workforce. Um, and notwithstanding the fact that they've got more people going into retirement than coming into the workforce, China is still running along with fast growth. You can have wobbly policy, uh, but not broken policy. And you can have uh, tricky institutions. I'm trying to find the right word, you know, by, while being, uh, I don't want to be sort of too sweeping, but you can have tricky institutions and the Raj uh, dynasty in India is a case in point where you know, doing business in India is still incredibly um, uh, onerous from an ease of doing business perspective. But India is running along with 6 and 7% economic growth. So there, there's forgiveness and other factors if you get the two big ones right. 
That's a really interesting answer. And I think it's particularly interesting to look at if on the one hand, the one essential thing is savings and investment, but the other one is having a functionally open marketplace. Because technically, having a functionally open marketplace is a very easy thing to do. You just do less, right? So <laughs> the only challenge sort of holding you back from that is, is political will. So it's less of a sort of a, an external threat and more of an internal decision that a country has to make to either be part of the global economy yeah. or not. Uh, yeah, but you know you need to be you need to be careful that you, you're ready for that openness. And you know to go to another example of countries who've got this wrong, all of the right intentions but got it wrong. Jamaica is a very sad case in point, where uh, in the late 1990s, because of their economic and fiscal circumstance, they were almost obliged to throw their borders open. And industrially, economically, they were not ready. And the result was Jamaica lands up uh, in a far worse off circumstance by being forced onto the international stage. If we brought that conversation to South Africa, you could think of South Africa through the 1990s, where industrial policy, as we were welcomed back into the global economic community, uh, our trade barriers lowered and a number of important South African industries just weren't able to compete uh, with those international uh, forces and the result is those industries are gone. So, you know, that that's the point about being ready, mindful, deliberate in uh, in throwing your borders open or taking the walls lower. It's, it's understanding that you're dealing with a, with a messy, complicated, real-life reality and not from an ideal blank slate situation. We're not setting up a new colony on Mars just yet where we can sort of build this <laughs> from the ground up perfectly the way we want it, this sort of the Plato version of his republic from, from scratch. you got to start with an actual reality. So maybe you could explain a bit what are those sort of prerequisites before you can have an open economy? What are some of the things that you have to get done to avoid essentially being exploited by bigger, stronger, faster international hands? The, the critical ingredient is uh, one of the last mentioned, and that's the policies and the institutions. And the policies need to be clear, stable, uh, well communicated uh, to the extent that they might even survive change in political regime or administration. And we've seen examples of that in places as diverse and different as uh, Costa Rica, uh, Chile, Ghana is a good African example where there's changes in political uh, regime or administration, but the policies essentially remain coherent and that they are passed through uh, regimes. The, um, uh, and attached to those that policy coherence and stability, I mean, it's a bit like parenting, right? Uh, in parenting, uh, one of the worst things that you can do is change the rules as you go along. And even if the rules are bad, make them up and stick to them. <laughs> this, much, this much I've learned uh, in my best efforts at parenting is be clear on what the rules are. No one has perfected parenting yet, as far as I know, if they have, can you know, they please share the, the, the manual. But um, what we do know is if you keep shifting the rules for your kids around uh, each night, and having been a kid, I can tell you, <laughs> in my own experience, that one of the best things my parents did was that these are the rules and those are the parameters, work within them. Um, so that's a critical ingredient. And then uh, it's not, no good just having the rules and talking to them and pointing to them, they have to be implemented and administered and applied. 
And so that's about the institutional capacity and capability. Those are the two critical ingredients. If you don't have those, uh, you are vulnerable to rent-seeking, extraction, gaming uh, the system, and very often, more often than not, this lands you up in a worse place than where you started. Yeah, the proper chicken and egg situations. The most important thing is to interact with the rest of the world, but you can only do that if you get your own house in order first. Yeah. And that, again, yeah. is something that should be in the hands of any government or any ruling party to do. But again, the challenge there is more one of, say, political will, perhaps rather than real barriers to being certain, because that's all you're really asking for is a clearly defined game within which then players can play their own game. But making sure, of course, that those rules are applied to everyone and are actually enforced, which should be the sort of base case for any economy or for any business, because without certainty, you can't make choices, you can't decide on your risk levels, you can't use any sort of model to see whether this is going to be worthwhile investing into, which is the other thing you need. So policy does seem to come first. When it comes to actually looking at what's going on in Africa and in South Africa in particular, we've had these conversations with various different guests on the show. And it seems to be that what's holding the continent back predominantly is ourselves, for want of a better word. We're not actually setting those rules in place and enforcing them. Why do you think that that is the case? And or is that a perception? It's not actually true, that perhaps we're actually doing better on this policy journey and this policy certainty than is assumed in the marketplace. And if it is a perception game, what do we need to do to change perceptions? So do we need to change how we're behaving or do we need to really embark upon a better advertising and marketing campaign to mm. you know, instill that trust in investors both locally and internationally? I think that's such a great question and it really uh, offers a, a rich perspective. Um, can, I, can I just rewind a couple of steps because you said you made a point about, well, you know, it's us, it's up to us, and I might be changing your words, but it's up to us to then establish the direction of travel and put those policies in place. And, you know, it really is up to us to uh, engineer or architect those, those outcomes. Uh, and in that observation, you, you remind me of a, a really powerful piece of work that's presented by the Zambian-born economist, Dambisa Moya. Um, uh, and she's possibly best known for her work on uh, aid and the damage that aid has done in trying to help. Uh, instead, it has hurt. Um, uh, and in, uh, in, in one aspect of the, the narrative and the evidence around the direction of travel of countries, the evidence that she presents is that countries can actually get democracy too early. And my reference to parenting uh, sort of plays into, into the storybook because your kids can protest against you in your, in your parenting, but certainly, you know, the younger they are, the, the, the more valid this claim is, but they, they can't vote you out. You know, I can't, I remember my sister, when she was four or five, she ran away from home. And she left home with a sandwich and a ballet shoe. Um, now, <laughs> you can imagine how long she disappeared for. It was about an hour, you know, before her protest and she was returned home to the policymakers called the parents. Um, 
hopefully the humor travels, but Dambisa Moyo's uh, uh, point is that countries that get democ democracy when they are when they have vulnerable economies and, and especially when they have low income economies, those democracies are particularly vulnerable. And the more that democracy is overturnable, the more volatile your policies become, that each change of government means a new set of policies. So what you might actually want early on is hold your breath. You might want a single party state. Um, and there is some strong evidence that points to that political stability that is attached to the single party state. Now, let me put in the economic word and say, however, that single party state runs a very high risk of being uh, a malevolent uh, dictatorship. And so how do you make sure that you don't get that bad outcome? You have a single party state where there are strong civil liberties. In other words, I can hold the government accountable. I can take the government to court. I can enforce my individual rights. I may not be able to vote, but I have rights as a citizen. So um, I, I guess I just wanted to make that point in passing, you know, that we can think of a number of countries that have been through really important uh, and successful transitions under single party circumstances, but with civil liberties or individual rights. And as the country becomes more successful, those rights become more enforceable and stronger and bigger. And eventually, those countries might uh, uh, iterate or evolve into uh, the Washington consensus, the multi-party democracy. Um, long answer or long response, and I haven't even gone to your question. So now, Bronwyn, let me go to your question, which is, you know, so how's Africa doing if those are the six factors? Well, um, Africa is not a place, it's 55 countries, or 56 or 54, depending on who you ask, but Africa is not a place, and we can point to examples of countries that really are, you know, struggling to, to bootstrap themselves, they are really stuck. Um, Mali, Chad would be cases in point, uh, Eritrea, and then uh, we've got the examples of Rwanda and uh, Ethiopia, who are the uh, second fastest and fastest growing economies in the world over the last 20 years. And if we aggregate uh, the 55 countries, it translates into uh, uh, the African continent being the second fastest growing region in the world over the last 20 years. So as an aggregate, Africa is actually in much better shape today than 20 years ago, that uh, the continent is home to some of the fastest growing economies in the world and the perception, your word, is, you know, well, how's the place doing? It really does depend on where you look and who you ask. So if you go to uh, uh, examples as different and diverse as uh, uh, Ghana, Senegal, uh, Kenya, Rwanda, Botswana, I think that we've got some extraordinary success cases in those countries that I've named. Then we've got some countries that are stuck in the middle. South Africa is a great case in point. I would argue that Nigeria is another. And then you've got others that are really struggling to find their feet. And I've mentioned a few of those. 
Yeah, let's go back to your point around sort of the democracy paradox, whether it comes first or, or later. One of the other guests we've had on the show is Pert Toll, who runs the Freedom Weighted Index EFT Fund. She's done quite well, and she looks at emerging markets across the world, and she's quite adamant that the best performing markets in the emerging market sector are correlated with both social and economic freedoms. So that would yeah. be like one sort of sort of challenge to that to that view. <laughs> However, I have been okay. reading over the last over the last few weeks the the book written by a bunch of African academics called it's called Democracy Works, and their thesis was trying to prove that democracy did work for Africa. But unfortunately, on if you actually read the book and read their their insights, they were unable to convincingly prove that thesis. They had actually shown inadvertently against what they were writing, because obviously democracy and freedom in the social and economic space are good aspirational goals for any society and for any individual. But unfortunately, the data that they provided, the charts that they managed to include in their book, kind of did lean more towards your thesis that perhaps in fragile states, when you don't have strong, strong structures, strong infrastructures, strong systems to underwrite policies and to enforce them, there was an indication that some of the case studies they tried to use to discount the, the thesis that democracy didn't work actually ended up making kind of the opposite point. And particularly when you look at what happens in places like Southeast Asia with the Singapore's of the like, which do have one party yeah. states, which did. However, there were, there's a proviso to my point there that kind of finds a bit of middle ground between what you're saying and and what Perth is saying and what came out of a book that was trying to make the opposite point. And you really were cheering on to say that we really would like you to succeed in making this argument, perhaps it didn't quite follow through, is that what did come through is that it seems that economic freedom needs to come before social freedom in order for if us, if we, if we can justify that democracy needs to come later, and I'm talking democracy there being the full freedom package rather than just a sort of piecemeal sort of thing there. That mm. point did seem to come through in terms of the data looking at Africa in particular, that there is no growth and none of the states and all, all the examples that you used were in that book, because obviously they tried to cherry pick the best case scenarios to try and make the point that freedom does work. It did seem that economic freedom was a prerequisite in order for other freedoms and other success to follow, as opposed to social freedom, which would seem to be a slightly different point to what you were making. Obviously, you're looking at different data to what they looked at in your study with the six pack, and you're looking at a different basket to what Perth looked at, which is only emerging markets. So I don't know if you want to interrogate that a bit more as to what freedoms come first and what freedoms are prerequisites before we can start to justify things like stronger states, which I think do make people feel a bit uncomfortable. But let's unpack that and look at the numbers and try not to be emotional about these things, because obviously sure. people don't like to have uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. Um, so there's 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 a hundred different things there. Let me try and uh, capture, or let me try and distill them into the things that are going on in my head. The first is um, that in terms of economic, well, maybe we should just first define you know, what, what I mean by each of the freedoms um, so that we're not talking past each other. Political freedom is I can vote, I can choose who runs the country. You know, and you might have uh, a two-party democracy, a multi-party democracy, but that's what I mean by political freedom. I can vote. If I can't vote, I don't have political freedom. 
Economic freedom is I can buy a property, I can build a patent or a trademark, I can sell it to someone, I can externalize my assets. Uh, you can't tell me what I should build, buy, own, sell, it's, you know, what my working hours are. I mean, that doesn't mean no regulation, but you know, I've got the right to buy, to sell, um, uh, and to own, and to improve. And then the third freedom is uh, civil freedoms and civil liberties. And those freedoms are the right to uh, protect my individual dignity, that you can't pollute my property, that I have the right to express a view. That doesn't mean I can change you as my government, but I can I can tell you that I don't like what you are doing and you can't throw me freedom in jail. Freedom of speech. Freedom, freedom of, of speech. Free, yeah. All of them. Exactly. Those are them. So, you know, what we find uh, in this work, um, and one of the first people that I worked with this uh, was one of my business school students, uh, Andre Liebenberg, and what he found uh, in, in his works uh, surveying more than 100 countries, 40 years of data, was that uh, the, the, the critical ingredient was economic freedom, absolutely right, economic freedom, um, with low political freedom, which gave you then policy stability. The huge qualification, though, was that political uh, uh, compromise had to be accommodated by civil liberties, that the Singaporean government cannot do whatever the hell it likes. Um, it may be a single party state, but it is a state that is held accountable. Um, and we find that again and again and again in the countries that we uh, study and survey. So those are the two freedoms that are critical, economic freedom and uh, the civil liberty. You'll appreciate that if you have no economic freedom and no political freedom, you've essentially got a single party state that's telling you what you should do. And one of the first things that they will confiscate is your civil liberties. And we know who those countries are. Um, you know, we, we've got those as um, uh, the places you do not want to emulate. North Korea is, is the worst textbook example. No political freedom, no economic freedom, no civil liberty. Um, when you have a single party state that starts confiscating civil liberties, it's a slippery slope. Um, uh, and that it quickly turns into a very dysfunctional, uh, malevolent dictatorship. So it's, it cannot be compromised. The civil liberties cannot be compromised. Uh, the state must be held accountable. However, you know, what sense do we make then of China? <laughs> um, and the point to make about China is slowly civil liberties have been improving. So China first moved with economic freedom. Uh, that will go into the global uh, markets. We will start to reduce barriers of doing business. There were things that were government owned, but really they were privately run. This so slowly started moving into economic freedom. Then started to move the political, sorry, the, the civil liberties. And certainly, you know, that country today has far more civil liberties than 10 or 20 or 30 years ago yet still no political uh, freedom. And the evidence suggests that you can actually wait for this one to come as long as the other two are steadily improving. It, it's a huge as long as the other two are steadily improving. Yeah, I'm glad you unpacked that because of course, when you talk about sort of social and economic freedoms, it is nice to break it down a bit more to say that you really are talking about, you do need a lot of those liberties, but there are compromises that you can make for stability in early times. You wanna say something? 
I want to say something. The point that I didn't speak to that you made was about uh, investment returns and uh, uh, and economic and political uh, liberties and civil liberties. Keep in mind that the, 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 what I'm measuring is how does the society progress? So we're measuring things like human development indices, social progress indicators. And in many of these places, as they progress very early and as they are emerging from frontier markets into emerging markets and eventually middle income and high income markets, in the very early stages there, they actually don't have investable markets. So you actually can't go and buy companies there. You know, th there's no capital market return. So what's being measured in terms of investment returns and economic freedoms and political freedoms, that belongs to a subset of our much broader uh, metric. Yes, of course. So investment classes, obviously. So it's yeah, yeah. smaller, but it's related. I mean, it's part of your part of one of your pillars. There is you have to get some sort of actual investments and actual stuff into the ground at some part, and quite a lot of that's going to come from. Let's be honest, this is Africa. It's going to have to come from offshore. <laughs> you know, we need a lot of that cap capital to grow here. Unless you have any thoughts on on the robustness of building an mm. intra-African market that does not require external investments. I mean, I know that's not <laughs> core to our conversation, but if you do have a thoughts in that, I'd be interested to hear. Well, can, I mean, can I say two things on that? So, you know, again, back to the Africa isn't a place point. If you take um, the first factor in that six pack, it's savings must equal investment or savings must fund investment. Um, many African uh, markets just have insufficient saving. South Africa is a great case in point. We've got a 15% savings rate. We talk as if we've got a 30% saving and investment rate. So it doesn't matter how much you talk about 5% economic growth. If your saving and investment rate is 15%, you cannot fund 5% economic growth with 15% saving and investment. So South Africa is a long way off that pace. Um, and in order to get to that 5% economic growth, we've got to fix the savings. Now, how much of that deficit could come from offshore? Some, but certainly not 15%. So what South Africa actually needs to fix is the dis, that, that distance between domestic saving and domestic investment need. We actually need to double our saving rate. Um, we've got uh, uh, Kenya, by contrast, which has a very low domestic saving rate, but a very high investment rate. And that distance is funded by foreign investment. Now, as Kenya gets bigger, it's going to be harder and harder to fund that through foreign investment. Then we've got Botswana, and Botswana has got a more than adequate domestic savings pool to fund a very robust domestic investment rate. So my complaint back to you, maybe it's the theme of our conversation, is it really depends on who we're talking about. Ethiopia has been able to fund a lot of its uh, growth by domestic saving, domestic investment. Only recently has Ethiopia said to foreigners, okay, come have a look. Um, so it, it really does depend on who we are talking about. Well, I think that's a great, a great case study, a great lesson there, though, that uh, if we are just sort of sitting around waiting for some white knights investors from somewhere else in the world to come and solve our problems, that's probably not the most pragmatic path to take. And I think that's probably a conversation you could have in many places in Africa, that a lot of the work has to start at home rather than waiting for sort of external agents to come and 
fix whatever is yeah. broken. So whether we're talking about policy, whether we're talking about investment rates, there's a lot of stuff that we can do without having to go cap in hand to, you know, negotiate more, more cash injections from the same old crowd in the rest of the world. I suppose that's just part of my perspective. But I think that a lot of the conversations that I have when I speak to African business owners, African investors, South African entrepreneurs and individuals, is that we kind of have two choices when it comes to our continents. You can either see it as a sort of a cow to be milked so that you can take your cash offshore and sort of hedge against the future of your own continent, or you can invest in it by starting a business, by buying a house, by saving some money in your local currency. And either way, you're going to be right because those are sort of self-perpetuating decisions. So everybody that decides to extract wealth from Africa accelerates the chances that the continent's not going to succeed. And everyone who decides to invest in it increases the odds that it will succeed. So there is, I think, a, a lesson to be said there to Africa at large, whether you're talking to the public sector or the private sector. Sure. And I'm kind of just interjecting there. I don't know how you, yeah. how you think about that <laughs> philosophy. <but. laughs> Well, I, I was going to I was going to make a second argument. I should remind myself that I was I wanted to make two points about the sort of the savings and investment story. Is not only do we have the capacity to build, as you point out, you know that base, that's within our means, um, but also we very often look past our most obvious opportunity, which is our neighbourhood, and. Uh, why do we look past that opportunity? Because the infrastructure is missing. So if you want to get from uh, uh, one part of Africa to another, very often it requires hopping to somewhere in Europe because of colonial legacy. Um, Ethiopia is helping fix this. Uh, uh, Kenya um, uh, is helping fix this. Rwanda is uh, helping fix this. So air travel is starting to become more connected, more integrated. We are missing the road infrastructure and the rail infrastructure. I think that there is a spectacular um, infrastructure investment opportunity in that. I don't think that that's sort of my novel idea that's well known, that there is a spectacular uh, infrastructure investment opportunity in integrating Africa. But then, you know, Bronwyn, your point about, well, it, it's up to you to build the base. What your comment reminds me of is let's rewind to uh, South Korea in the 1960s or Singapore in the 1970s. These were poor countries and they had per capita incomes of a few hundred dollars. Uh, Costa Rica in the 1990s was the poorest country in Central America. And think of their neighbors, it's Honduras, Nicaragua, Haiti. I mean, you live in a dodgy neighborhood. They all started poor, but they were able to, through changes in their behaviors and habits start to build savings bases. And those savings bases are not building mega investment plants and monolithic manufacturing capacity. It might be building small in a plastic toy manufacturers and the flywheel then starts to move. And your point is absolutely on the money that you start to move the flywheel and as it moves, you can then start to generate and it starts to become a benevolent cycle and the flywheel picks up and the growth rate picks up and the jobs pick up and you start to export and so it goes. Not all magically yeah, exactly. in one direction, but yeah. 
you've got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> and that's the great thing about somewhere. the economy. Wherever you start, it affects pretty much everything, as we kind of understand after living through lockdowns that have had maybe some arbitrary choices made. You start to see how really everything is connected, for better or for worse. It's not only in, in a negative sense, but also in quite a positive one. But speaking of last year, I did want to go back to where you opened with, with the comment that you made when it comes to those sort of six pack of ingredients, how healthcare is actually a more key indicator than education, which I think would mm. surprise quite a lot of people. So I wanted to yeah. unpack that a little bit. So maybe you can just start with some opening comments there, and then I've got a few questions for you. Sure. So, look, you know, maybe I should just maybe the first part of the response is is to recognize that very often the the response to education is in a, a south african context and that is a particularly sensitive point because education was used as a political tool in south africa and it 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 is it it, it was a tool of the oppressor, and that we will exercise our political, military, policing power uh, by denying education. So it's a, it's a, it's a highly sensitive and politicized point. And given the way in which education was used as an instrument in South Africa, I think it, it is unsurprising you know, that many South African conversations start off with, well, what we need to fix is education. Uh, that was the tool of the oppressor. Um, I don't want to over-politicize it because our evidence is not South African. Our work is international. And when we look at these 160 countries and we ask what carries higher weight, uh, edu uh, education and healthcare both carry important weights, but health carries a higher weight than education. And I referenced sequencing earlier that you want to download things in particular orders. You actually want to download healthcare before you download education. That's what the global evidence tells us, that it is very hard to build a prosperous society if you've got a fantastic education system, but your children are have high rates of absenteeism, uh, that they can't concentrate in school, that they're in the classroom, but they're hungry, uh, that your country is well-educated, but they are psychologically and socially dysfunctional. So uh, health is actually a leading indicator. And to underline the point that it is not just physical health, it is social health, psychological health, that uh, we belong to a place that we feel physically safe, psychologically safe, emotionally safe, and um, uh, that we can then participate uh, in the society and you head off to an education system that actually does not start with PhDs. It starts with basic numeracy and literacy. So if you wanna get two things right, it's primary healthcare and basic education, and you wanna get the healthcare right before you get the education right. That's what the, well, the evidence suggests. That makes so much sense because early childhood education, particularly in South Africa, and I think across a lot of Africa, the same conversation applies. That a lot of the reasons why early childhood education is failing is because children simply do not have the nutrition they require yeah. in order to develop to their full potential. So in order to it's fix basic education, days. you have to fix nutrition first, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like if that's that, it's it's all part of the same system. And if you want to fix education, as you're saying, you've got to start at the beginning. 
And I think that from a policy perspective, we tend to perhaps focus too much on the end because of course, older young people <laughs> have a voice. And of course, you know, policy and attention and media and money do tend to follow where the, the, the loudest voices are. So perhaps we need sort of we need to we've got scarce resources. That's that's the first thing. We don't have a lot of savings. You're trying to spread and deal with lots of challenges at the same time. But in terms of importance versus urgency, we probably do tend to err on the side of urgency for fixing a lot of those things in both the healthcare and the education buckets, rather than still thinking a bit with a bit more foresight about the important problems and fixing education in a country like South Africa is not going to happen quickly. It's a it's going to take 30 years because you have to start with the children who are being born now, making sure they have good nutrition, making sure mm. they go to good primary school. That's that's that, that's not going to get fixed before then. I mean, you can do things to improve it along the way. Well, I'm, I'm, really, I'm it's just, a long term project. <laughs> I'm jumping up and down in my chair because. I don't agree. I think that it can be fixed. It doesn't need 30 years. In fact, it needs a thousand days. Because if you look at the highest returns on education investment, they are in the first 1,000 days, what we call early childhood development, ECD. And that as you progress from there, returns on education investment actually step down. So the lowest returns on investment uh, are in your master's programs and in your PhDs. Why do those people earn so much money? Because they are compounding. They had their first 1,000 days were fantastic. Then they had great primary education, superb secondary edu education. And the tail end is the tertiary education, which is the final you know, gorgeous compounder. But if you look at just raw return on investment, the biggest returns on investment, and we're talking uh, a social return on investment that sits in 25%. Massive gains on uh, social capital um, uh, is an early childhood development. So if we could all agree that we go home tonight and we will wake up tomorrow and invest in every baby that is born from tomorrow in their first 1,000 days, it'll be one of the biggest gains we can have as a society. I think we are in more agreement than, than, you, than you suppose, because that's <laughs> what I'm also proposing, that we start with the babies because it does okay. give us much oh, huge so returns. But I'm Sorry, saying by I the time we, we yield that I investment, it's quite a it. long investment before we get the, the master's graduates and the doctoral the sort of candidates agree. and the entrepreneurs out of that system, which is why Agreed. it's not as politically attractive as dropping fees for postgrad students. So I think that yeah. I think we're in agreement with what needs to be done. But I think that the, the challenge here is the, the sort of time inconsistency bias mm, of mm. the various actors in the systems. Uh, sorry. sorry, I misunderstood <laughs> I you. And, and... That. Yeah, but I think I'm, I'm on the same page yeah. as you. I'm just... But, but you, you, you know, Sobron, the, the, the other thing that uh, I would jump up and down on here is, well, gorgeously, the, those returns on early... Sorry, the, the capital required in early childhood development is very, very small. You don't need um, uh, nuclear physicists to teach your doctoral students. In fact, in early childhood development, the, the teaching, the training, the nurturing, the caring is essentially at the community level. Um, and you can think of, you know, grannies and grandpas uh, doing these investments. It's about um, FaceTime and, and high touch and sort of, tangible and malleable types. And, and the, the, the capital required to make those investments are very, very small. 
It's actually social investment rather than putting together schools and infrastructure. It's community investment. So why haven't we done that? I think that's that's the, the question because this is this is a solvable problem. Like a lot of the things you've spoken about, they're not impossible <laughs> things to, to solve. They don't require you no. know acts of God, they don't require you know gifts from the UN, they don't require permission, they require action and political will, but also personal will of individuals and in society, as you say, particularly in the early sort of childhood case there. So why? I know we're running out of time to, time here, but but why are we getting these these things wrong? Because everything you've spoken about is makes a lot of sense. Not a, not a lot of this is counterintuitive to to mm. what you know many people who have grown up in any sort of society understand about why the world works. So why are we getting it wrong? When I speak we here, I'm speaking more about South Africa and the rest of the African continent because we shouldn't speak about our neighbors. They can they can defend their own case. But mm. why are we getting it wrong? And what is some of what are is one thing even that we can be doing as citizens to to start to change that to take advantage of the essentially all opportunities that you've laid out and articulated very clearly on the table that are sort of ours to take or not to yeah. and at the last few years or any indication we've chosen simply not to not to yeah so then I mean, I mean that's about that's about social will you spoke earlier about political will uh, you know this is about social will and very often we behave as the victim. Um, you know, that this is our lot. Uh, someone needs to fix this for us. Uh, Jay Naidu, uh, some years ago, made the really powerful observation, simple statement, that uh, fixing a country like South Africa, the government is not able to do this. I mean, you can imagine as an ANC insider, here he is saying government can't fix South Africa. You know, everyone gasps and he follows the, he finishes the sentence with saying there is no government in the world that can fix problems the size of South Africa. That is actually up to the social, it's a social imperative. It is our country, it's our problem, the solution is ours. And, and I think that we, as a society, tend to stand around, talk, point, uh, and play the victim. Um, if we look to our neighbors and look at some of the incredible successes that they've had in education systems. And imagine if they, if they had other ingredients alongside those education systems. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of you know, Zimbabwe and Malawi as good cases in point, absolutely superb education systems with fantastic early childhood development. Now add the other ingredients to those education systems, and you've got very different looking countries. Um, uh, and that's we, when we can now start to look a little further north and say, well, what's going on in Kenya and Rwanda? Well, they've got their education systems right. They've taken it on as a social imperative. Uh, uh, Rwanda is arguably the, the, the more obvious case in point. And they are in the business of self-determination. In fact, Paul Kagame says, if we get distracted again, whose fault is it? Um, you know, maybe we should look to ourselves. It's such a, it's a big point that he makes. So let's stop talking. Let's stop, stop playing the victim uh, and let's get on with it. And that is the, the communal, the social imperative of something like early childhood development is you do not need gazillions of dollars and a government policy to do it. It's actually ours to do.
That's a fantastic point. And I think it's a good point to end this conversation. I want to give you the opportunity if you've got any sort of closing remarks or anything that we didn't cover or you want to clarify to go for it. And then if you could also tell people where to find you if you want to be found, if they want to continue <laughs> this conversation or work with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would love to be found. Uh, I mean, all of this is exactly, you know, this it is a, it's a conversation. Look, you know, in sharing this research, this evidence, these arguments, these findings, there's a great risk that I run of uh, pretending that I have or, or appearing uh, that I've solved all of these great problems. Um, we're working with data. We're working with 160 countries over 60 years. This is not all of history for all time. We are working with what we know. Uh, and what we are in search of is a thing called prosperity. And prosperity is not high income per person. Prosperity is measured by what the mountain kingdom of Bhutan calls happiness. Uh, and happiness is not that fleeting feeling of when you get a new car uh, or you know, a, a new outfit or someone says, oh, you look gorgeous. You know, that happiness measured in this way is what we call satisfaction. It is this intrinsic sense of well-being um, and, and welfare. That's what we're in search of, a sense of belonging, a sense of inclusion, a sense of by doing these things, I can get to a better place. A, a society in which there is social mobility, that by being being born in a particular circumstance doesn't determine your direction of travel for the rest of your life. That's what we're after. Um, and in our research is in the public domain. Uh, it's available for, for download, for debate, for criticism, um, uh, for contribution. And the place that you can find me, the most easiest places, uh, the, the social platforms that I'm on are Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, LinkedIn, of course, just search my name. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm at Adrian Saville. And I would love to have these conversations and to debate and engage because it is that that will get us to better places. Thank you so much for being so generous with your insights and with your time. Thank you.